0: Welcome to this food thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Hi, welcome back to love this food thing podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Emmy Brunner. Emmy is a psychotherapist, hypnotherapist and personal empowerment and transformation coach. She is CEO of the Recover Clinic, author of two books, a speaker and founder of the highly successful eight-week online coaching program, From Lost to River. I love that title, by the way. Mm -hmm. Emmy believes that we have all experienced trauma in our lives and that what we now refer to as quote-unquote mental health conditions is actually our response to those traumas. Her clinical work is framed by this belief. Emmy focuses on working with dynamic and ambitious women who she inspires and empowers to reconnect with their true selves. Emmy, welcome to Love This Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. Before we dive into the main body of the interview, can you just briefly outline what you mean um, by mental health conditions? Do you mean collectively all our mental health conditions?
1: Yeah, exactly. Everything from sort of mild anxiety to more significant depressive episodes, everything that we talk about as mental health problems are the result of and response to trauma.
0: In that, do do you think it's unhelpful to be putting labels on mental health conditions?
1: Um, I think it can be helpful for, for some people to feel like it validates them it validates their experience and it gives them something to kind of make sense of what they're going through Um, but I think it can be unhelpful because it labels us and it and quite often it can make us feel like that that's something we have that we have to then live with and manage rather than a response to something that we can heal from.
0: That's so interesting also then we are it's almost because we've been diagnosed or we have that label that we then join in that with that group or that narrative and
1: mm-hmm. sort of take yeah. the
0: boxes and go, I have this, therefore I am.
1: And yeah.
0: yeah, resp- Okay. Fantastic. Um, You're the first person I've been able to talk to about this in, in this way. Let's, mm. let's leave that to a little bit later. Um, I'd like to just ask you about your relationship with, with food.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And whether you consider food to be a friend or, or a foe?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, that even that question is so uh, odd to me because it's it it's just something that is just not only just necessary but provides us with such pleasure in life. Whether it's pleasure just personally one on one, or it's a vehicle for sharing moments with people, it's an opportunity to experience different things, different cultures, and the idea that we would think of that in anything other than a positive way um, to me at this point in my life certainly just doesn't make any sense. Have you always felt like that? I think what I understood to be um, negative about food was really actually what living with an eating disorder was like Um, and I think what happens when we're when we're living with an eating disorder is that food becomes the enemy and actually so much of my work is focused around helping people to really think about the problem being the eating disorder and one of the symptoms of the eating disorder is that it creates this kind of demonization of food uh, where it becomes something that we're battling to control resist restrict whatever um, and actually it's it's not where we need to be focusing our efforts our efforts need to be focused on on healing the relationship that we have with ourselves and understanding that the impact that that's had on food is a is a by-product of that it's a response to that.
0: Yeah, food's the way we work it out, isn't it? And the, our physical body being the kind of canvas. Do you, yeah. I'm gonna ask you a personal question. You don't have to answer it. Do you know what feelings you were dealing with when you had a disordered relationship with food?
1: Um, God, in, in high, I mean, certainly not at the time necessarily. Mm. Um I wouldn't have had that clarity or that ability to have that insight. I don't think I was reacting to what I was experiencing at the time when I was in those moments, but certainly I feel like I was lonely and depressed and anxious and just feeling all sorts of uh, self-loathing toward myself both related to my body and not you know just a a real blanket sense of unworthiness um but whether i would have been able to articulate that at the time i really don't think i would have done did you find that by uh let's
0: say manipulating your relationship with food because eating disorders are manipulative did you find them in it in any way soothing that behavior did it help you out for a little while
1: well, I think that's the nature of the beast is that it provides us a sort of false sense of comfort in moments where we can pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, we've managed to, to achieve something, we've managed to achieve a certain weight loss goal or we've we've managed to control our relationship with food on a particular day or in a particular moment. And and in that fleeting moment we can have a sense of comfort from it, but it's very short-lived. Um, and it's almost as though we then turn to the eating disorder to solve the problem of the eating disorder, it becomes a sort of very cyclical yeah. experience.
0: Yeah. Um absolutely.
1: and I think that sense of comfort is 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 not real. I think it's very um fleeting. What was your uh
0: what was your family like with food? Your kind of the familial themes?
1: Oh I mean, God, such a mixed bag, I think. Um <clears throat> I, I think I came from a family of people that cooked and had, in some ways, a very respectful relationship with food. Yeah. But I think I grew up very much in a in a in a time where weight and body was increasingly an obsession, and you know it was very normal for everybody's mum to be on a diet and to be very uh, obsessed with weight and talking yeah. about weight, um, which is something that I'm hoping is you know starting to change a bit. Yeah. Um. And so I think it just growing up in that environment, I was very, very conscious of what I would look like as an adult and how my body would be before I even had any sort of eating disordered behaviours.
0: And when did you start to resolve your relationship with food?
1: Um, I think that probably started sort of in my early 20s, starting to consider that the relationship that I had with uh food was destructive that the relationship that i had with myself was destructive and i started to gain some sense that actually it was it the problem existed way beyond what i chose to eat or not eat yeah it was it was the relationship that i had with myself and starting to be a little bit more curious i started my clinical training when i was quite young i was only 23. that is young um, yeah, it's often a second career for a lot of people being yeah. a therapist. Yeah, I mean, less and less, actually. We, we recruit some incredible um, younger therapists who are really dynamic and um, amazing clinicians. But yeah. at that point, it was unusual for somebody my age to train as a clinician. I was definitely the youngest in my class. I had to talk my way onto the course because uh, okay. the, the cut the cutoff was 25. Um, okay. But I think that, that got me to start to think about myself and my place in the world in a very different way. I started to develop a language that I hadn't had before mm. and started to challenge some of the things that I'd just accepted as part of who I was and the way things were always going to be.
0: Fascinating that you were 23 and that you were having those revelations then i certainly wasn't having those relation revelations although i was curious i remember meeting someone who'd who was going to therapy i think i was waitressing in a restaurant and uh, and she was going to therapy and i was like what is this therapy mm-hmm. and i and i and i went purely because of her she was seeing an art therapist and then i remember the therapist i worked with her for a couple of years and she said you really need to go away until you're about 30 a little mm-hmm. bit more mature to deal with what we're trying to deal with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But absolutely. It's about your relationship with yourself and the feelings that you're trying to manage and how you, how you can exist in the world. The, the mm-hmm. eating disorder is almost, almost a byproduct. helpful. Mm-hmm. If you can unpick it helpful, not helpful if you can't.
1: Yeah. So because yeah.
0: you go on, sorry, go on. Were you going to say no, something? No, go
1: on. No, no, no.
0: Um. Our, I've been listening to some interviews. I keep saying, uh, and, um, and I've just done it for the first time in 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you're training as a clinician. Yeah. Are you finding that as you're training, you are establishing a better relationship with yourself and food in your body, or did you kind of dive a bit and then... Right. I,
1: like, I think it I think it's there's something with clarity and insight that highlights the darkness in our lives isn't there yeah so you know in in those years I don't know whether things were worse or whether I was just suddenly aware I think I went through a process of becoming fully conscious of what my decisions were why I was making them what the consequences of those decisions were in a way that I never had before. And so they were very dark days for me in lots of ways, particularly in the relationships that I I was in. Um, But I was suddenly aware that I was in bad relationships. I was suddenly aware that I was making choices, um, even if I wasn't yet in a position to do anything about them. Um, And slowly, slowly started making some shifts and changes, but it took time. It, it took does. time to do that. Mm. I also started working with people. I started helping other people. And um, oh, yeah. right. through that, I think you start to heal yourself. I always say to my clients, when you're stuck, be of service to someone else because it helps us so enormously
0: 100%. when you're
1: able to, to support others.
0: 100%. Even more so now, particularly okay. after 30 years of the politics that we've had in this country and capitalism and everything about you know looking Mm. after only the self and not the community we absolutely Mm. need to change change that and yes things are transformed aren't they when you help someone else
1: yeah they are they are
0: so were you just we're going to move away from from I just want to establish for people who are listening were you restricting food and binging
1: um, I was mainly a restrictor, really. I just okay. very neglectful myself, Claire. It was very neglectful, so I didn't sleep enough, I didn't eat enough, I didn't drink enough. Okay, um, yeah.
0: Okay, okay. So it was about establishing your self, your well, your importance, and um, that you were worthy and good enough and lovable, mm-hmm. and and that whole that whole list. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you were training to be a clinician. Are we saying that you're training to be a psychotherapist at this point? Yeah, I was training to be a psychotherapist. Right. Yep. Did you also you, you had your own psychotherapy? I'm I'm assuming. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I had a no. really mixed bag of different <laughs> therapists that I work with. ugly. I need about. about I I don't. I mean, maybe maybe yeah, it. no, I don't. I, I think you know, therapy is like any relationship. Really, you need to find somebody who you feel sees you and who you feel that you are in connection with. Um, And I think uh, my experience was a very mixed bag. And I think what was fortunate about my clinical training is it was a mandatory part of my training. And so I wasn't allowed to be sort of too put off by some of the more negative experiences that I'd had because I had to do it. That's very so interesting. If, so, if one clinician wasn't working out and I wasn't feeling like I was getting anywhere, mm. uh, well, I'd move on to another one. And if that didn't feel like it was working out, I'd have to move on to another. I didn't really have much choice. Interesting. Um, but they, I had a kind of really wide breadth of experience from therapists who were just very passive and, um, you know, falling asleep or seeming <laughs> disengaged and bearing yeah. so your soul. That's, yeah. yeah exactly to other people who offered insights that were just so wildly off the mark and i realized people didn't understand Mm. and they didn't understand particularly eating disorders you know there was this questions that i would have about a pursuit of thinness or you know did i do it because i thought it would make me look more attractive and i just thought you have no idea you don't understand um and there's lots of things about being a clinician that we don't need to have been through the same experiences as everybody else, but I think we have a responsibility to gain insight and, and also to have a have a broad understanding of what trauma is and how it impacts people and and why people choose to harm themselves in whatever form that takes, um, and I think that's there's a responsibility there that we have as clinicians to be able to do that. Um, and so uh, I was lucky. Eventually, I found, I found those people. I had um, at my work. I was working at a re- residential rehabilitation center at, at one point, and my boss was a clinician, and she was incredible. Right. And I learned so much from her, her okay. vast experience and her ability to empathize and understand how people were feeling and being able to sit in the darkness with people. I learned such a lot from her. Yeah, and how
0: people get into a real pickle and sometimes can't find their way out or get stuck for a long time.
1: Yeah, well, I think the problem with eating disorders, particularly, is because people, the people who are suffering, everybody around them responds to the physical crisis quite often. Yeah, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop Mm -hmm. restricting. You need to stop binge. You need to stop purging. And so, what you're really doing is you're getting into a battle with a with a sufferer where you're trying to wrench away their primary strategies for coping with life. yeah. And as soon as you do that, somebody moves to protect the illness because they're frightened and sure. they feel overwhelmed by the world. Absolutely. And I think as soon as you find a way to just work with the illness to stabilize somebody, it's what I always say to clients when they come into clinic, let's just work on keeping things steady for a bit. Yeah. You don't have to stop doing what you're doing. Let's just make sure you don't get any more unwell. Yeah. Um, and then let's work on you And the pressure lifts, you know, that idea of having weight gain targets or if you act out, we're going to discharge you. It's just, it makes no sense to me at all.
0: Yeah, it's the wrong way around, isn't it? We're going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm here with Emmy Brunner. And as I said in the introduction, Emmy believes that we've all experienced trauma and that what we collectively refer to as our mental health conditions is actually our response to these traumas. And I've actually been thinking about this for a long time, Emmy. I've Mm -hmm. had the conversation with people and I found people quite um, reactive when you say that. And I understand that. But I'd like to talk about that take on it in in this bit of the interview. And also, what do you think are the main drivers for eating disorders, the main feelings that fuel eating disorders, um, self-harm, etc.? Yeah.
1: I think trauma is, people don't really understand what that means, I think is part of the problem, why people have a reaction to it. Mm. Trauma is about um, understanding that actually the nature of being a human being means we all all experience trauma. Trauma is any life event that you have found challenging or distressing in any way. So we've all experienced those things. What's really key is what are the tools that we have to cope when those things inevitably happen? And if we've grown up in a way where we don't have the strategies and tools to be able to cope with challenging life events in a way that we would widely regard as healthy or mm-hmm. balanced,
0: mm-hmm.
1: We, we look for other ways to cope. We look for other ways to try and manage. And an eating disorder really is a, is a response to that. It's a way of trying to cope and manage um, difficult traumatic events and then the story that arises from those events about who we think we are and how we view ourselves in the world that's absolutely key because we all have a narrative an internal narrative about who we believe we are and that narrative is either helpful to us or it's damaging yeah and if it's damaging then it obviously it has a a very detrimental impact on everything that we do in our lives
0: I'm very grateful that I had a therapist who taught me to change my narrative and he Mm -hmm. took it apart for me and Mm -hmm. showed it to me and said, look at this. Mm. What do you think about this? Mm. And um, yeah, I've been writing about narratives recently and I'm I'm completely agree. Do you think there's a difference? I know we're talking about not labeling stuff, but do you think there's a difference in the narrative or the kind of theme of someone who's expressing their distress through, let's say, anorexia? Mm. or bulimia or binging
1: is that even helpful to know that theme no i don't think it's very helpful really i think i think part of the problem is we we're encouraged to see ourselves as separate and i think one of the most confusing things for a lot of people with eating disorders is they'll look at a website and look at a list of symptoms and think well what do i have what am i and they'll find that they can't neatly fit into one of these categories um, and it just devalidates us and, and makes us feel confused about what's going on with us. And actually, the truth is, if we harm ourselves emotionally or physically, um, then there's a problem. And actually, that may manifest around your relationship with food in a, in a way that you may be overeat or undereat. But actually, the problem is that relationship you have with yourself. And actually, so many people who binge eat restrict very, very heavily. Yeah. It's just not what you physically necessarily see. They just don't, they, they, they binge as well as restrict. Binge eaters can restrict, you know, in ways that people with anorexia can, yeah. but they binge as well. So it's it's really unhelpful to kind of make people feel separate in that way. Um, and having programs that are specifically for those different things, I've, in my experience, has never been successful or helpful because again it just makes it about the symptoms and the food rather than the person and the person gets missed because
0: also as you come into balance internally and you start to you know to be general you feel better about yourself mm-hmm. those symptoms start to disappear don't they because they don't make sense yeah. you don't have the, you don't have the impulse to to starve or to binge or
1: you, it's it's much harder to harm something you care about
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Do you find that your peers, your professional peers, are in agreement with you?
1: I mean, to be honest, I've been a bit of a lone wolf in terms of my career. The environment that I was in, particularly in my early 20s, I was a lot younger than a lot of my peers. And I was doing something that was very different. Um, I'd set up a clinic that was working with eating disorder clients in a very different way. Right. Um, and it was quite challenging. Um, in the UK, there's a lot of cross referrals, there's a lot of buddying up in terms of that community. And it was just not something I wanted to be a part of, I wanted to be in relationship with the clients. And I wanted to be in the community and letting them know that they were seen and heard. And so I moved away from a lot of those clicks. Um, and I'm glad that I did. Luckily, there have been people and places that have opened up a lot of them have used our models or replicated similar things right which is i think testament to how well the program's done and how you know how successful it's been but um no for me the priority was always being in relationship with the the community and making sure that we were in connection with them did you so when you first started working as a psychotherapist um you did you say you you worked in a in a residential Uh, I worked in a residential facility, yeah. In in an inpatient facility, which was a 12-step facility. But they also treated eating disorders. And they put them on the same 12-step model. um, And they weren't getting better. And they weren't getting better,
0: right. But They still don't
1: for residential. The relapse rates are over 90%.
0: 90%? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. mm, So interesting. I can imagine it's been... I I can imagine it's been lonely, as you said, and requiring great strength and vision from yourself because you're going against the grain, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I think I never thought about myself in the context of what everyone else was doing. I thought I just thought about my experience, Mm. what I saw working, what I saw not working, and thinking. And and I still am like this today. Let's try different things, let's try and be creative. Yeah. Um, And the goal is always. How can we make sure that the client feels seen and heard? How can we make sure that the client um, is, is recognized beyond a list of symptoms? Do you find that
0: one of the issues that clients have is letting go of the story and the narrative and the label?
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah, of course. Because we're so invested. We don't know that we are. We're so invested in that script. yeah, Um, But we don't know. And so a huge part of the work that I still do is about illuminating those truths, making sure that we really fully understand what is motivating our behaviors. Because so often we, we don't know. And I didn't know. And as soon as you do, it gives you an opportunity to make a different choice.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Fascinating. So
1: you were, um, when did you then go into your own private practice? Yep, I set up my own private practice when I was about 26. Wow. And that that became the clinic, really. Um, It started off with just me seeing clients. And then I was so busy. We set up a second, I set up a group. I then recruited somebody else to, to work with me and so on and so on. Um, until we had what, you know, eventually became the clinic, seeing clients all over the world and having a big team. What do you think about group therapy? Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think you're going to, anybody that engages in group therapy is going to progress their recovery at a far quicker pace than somebody who's resistant to it. Why so? Because I think when you're in a one-on-one environment, you are only a you're sharing what you choose to share you've got the insights of one other person when you're in a group you enter into a community experience where you're able to see other people struggling you're able to empathize to see maybe parts of yourself reflected in others you're able to get feedback from a a number of different people but also when we go into a group we replicate our behaviors in a group whatever group that is so the family dynamics we have at home will be replicated in a therapy group
0: yeah of course it will be reflected back
1: yeah and you can't do that in a one-on-one session so in a, in a group therapy scenario you have the opportunity to engage as you would in any other group dynamic but then to have an opportunity to challenge those things work on them um and it's an incredible experience people are often really frightened of doing group but it's it's really is one of the most rewarding things
0: i was i was frightened of of, of doing group and i had a yeah. um, one to one therapy a long time ago now i was very resistant i but i felt very um, so here's my defense this is what i would have said to you at the time that mm-hmm. <laughs> so i would have felt very competitive it triggered all that um yeah. um i think i probably would have kind of put on a facade but i mm-hmm. guess it's groups working and the person running the group is skilled is skilled enough, Mm -hmm. then that would all fall away by just process of being in the group and growing together.
1: Well, yes, but also, you know, part of what you're talking about is one of the symptoms of my illness was that I was competitive. And if you put me in a group, I would have been competitive. Now our job as therapists is to not to try and placate the illness. We're not trying not to do things that are going to trigger it. We're trying to help you cope. We're trying to help you build resilience. And so, yes, you may be triggered in, a, in an envi- in a group environment, just like you would be in a, in a social environment. If you went to a party or you went out with a group of girlfriends, you would be triggered. So our goal is to not prevent that from happening. Our goal is to help you when it does. Um, and with regards to uh, the other point that you made around. Um, Oh God! It's gone out of my head now. What was the other thing you said that we? Um, I said competitive and also putting on a facade. Oh right! Again, same thing, isn't that? Yeah. It wasn't that life for you? It wasn't life about putting on a facade, putting on a brave face, only allowing people to see what you wanted them to see, 100%. trying to control how people? Yeah. Right, so So's yeah. the problem. So yeah. you don't go into a group group hoping that we're going to be able to avoid the problems. We go into a group knowing or how, hoping that those issues are going to be highlighted to us so that we can heal them.
0: That's so interesting. I did a lot of group work later actually, and um, yeah. yeah, it was it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I, yes, yeah, of course, I'm not going to start talking about me. My therapy session, not at all. Mm-hmm. So lots of people who have eating disorders, because we're talking about eating disorders,
1: mm-hmm.
0: are on lists to see Mm -hmm. people they Mm -hmm. can't afford to see a therapist
1: yep i don't
0: know if there are uh groups in the community that are set up for people with eating disorders without Mm -hmm. having to go through the nhs or being recommended Mm -hmm. by your gp Mm -hmm. what would you advise someone who's broke
1: yep i mean first of all First of all, get in touch with us because uh, we offer free advice. You'll be able to speak to a clinician for free who will let you know what, if anything, is available in your area. We've spent the last year developing um, an online program that you can sign up for, which is far more cost effective than anything else at all, anywhere. Um, we did that to try and get the kind of work that we're doing in the clinic to reach as many people as possible because we understand the problems. We understand the limitations. We know that people are on waiting lists for years yeah. to try and access the kind of help that they need and even then not not actually getting it because the NHS is just so overstretched and under-resourced. Um, so we've developed a program where people can have two clinical sessions a week, two nutritional therapy sessions a week and various other sort of guest workshops and stuff. And it's a three month program. And that is available to you wherever you are. Um, And it's incredible. We had a soft launch for it um, a few months ago and had an an amazing response and we're launching it again this September. So uh, if you wanna speak and chat to one of the clinicians, they'll let you know if that's appropriate for you as an option or if something else might be better.
0: And people can go to your website and find it there or on your they Instagram can go onto page? The web-
1: yeah, they can go onto the website and find it there or you can look at the clinic's Instagram page. Yeah.
0: Okay. Which is the Recover Clinic. Yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. We're going to take a quick break. Hi, welcome back to Love This fitting Podcast. I'm here today with Emmy, Emmy Brunner, and uh, we're just winging it, Emmy and I here. I'm trying not to say, "er," uh, and mm-hmm. we went to the last bit of the interview. We were just talking about the relaunch of her coaching program, which you can find on the Recover Clinic Instagram page and Emmy's website. But just briefly, can you tell me about your eight week online coaching program from Lost mm-hmm. River, the title that mm-hmm. I love? It's such a great yeah. title.
1: Yeah, thank you. It comes from a, an old Spanish saying, and I was trying desperately to think about what would be appropriate. And this idea that from lost to the river, Beautiful. you know, that actually you don't need to find your way home; you need to find the river because it oh. will lead you to life. I love um, that, as rivers do. Indeed, and it's been a, It's one of the best things I've ever done in my career. From lost to the river, it's um, incredible the the work that we've done and the women that have done the program. Um, experience the most amazing transformations in such a big shift in such a short time Um, and it's taking you through eight weeks breaking down a lot of those negative core beliefs that we have Um, and what I've done really is try to condense everything I've learned both on my own personal journey but through my clinical work over the last 20 years um, and put it into an eight-week program Uh, to reach as many people as possible, I think such a big thing for me was this work that I've done changed my life. And it gave me an opportunity to do things and have experiences that I just never thought were possible. And everybody deserves that.
0: Absolutely. How did it change your life?
1: Uh, In the most simple ways, really. I think uh, being able to have a joyful marriage, I never thought would be possible for me.
0: I'm, um, I'm there with you. I have that as well. I don't. Yeah. a miracle, isn't it?
1: It is. It is a miracle. <laughs> and it's a big miracle for me because that was a big one for me, negative okay. relationships and okay. um, being able to have children, being able to live a life that feels really aligned with my sense of truth about who I am. Um, being able to show up and mm. be myself. Mm-hmm. These seem like small things, but there's things that I really don't take for granted. Um, and the work the work that I do has evolved so much over the years and I love it. I love the women I get to work with. Um, we're really um, sort of keen to reach as many as people as possible, but I love working with people who want the change. Wow, yeah. Who are hungry for the change and, and beyond whatever symptoms they might have that are willing to go on a journey and take some faith and those people change their lives in ways that oh, just forever inspire me. Um, and I'm forever in awe of how brave they are. It's incredible. I love it. Do you only work with women? I do uh, at the moment. I think mm-hmm. many years ago, we ran programs for men and it was a lot harder to get men to engage there's so many obstacles that yeah. guys are having to overcome yeah um and we had women banging the door down and i think there became a point where we made a choice to say right we we already have these people who are wanting to do this work and let's let's focus our attention on them and these women that we are supporting and helping to heal are raising boys and let's give them tools to try and challenge some of the obstacles that young men are facing today and that became a big focus so we have a lot of male guest speakers on the programs as well to try and help those things and we do a lot of family work so we work with men in, in the kind of context of the family as well do you think it's shifting
0: do you think that? Uh, do you think men are more? Uh, it's more. It's kind of works, yes.
1: more accessible for men. Yes, yeah. I do, and I think there yeah. are some. You know, there are some amazing sort of male role models out there who are challenging some of these things. But I still think it's hard. Yeah. Um, for guys, I do, and um, trying to find their voice, trying to, to consider their emotional needs, I think is something that doesn't occur to a lot of guys. Um, unless they're in a crisis and that's the sure. thing that we all need to challenge you know we don't need to be in a crisis to do this work we need to do this work because it's going to up level our experience of what it is to be human do you work with
0: absolutely do you work with mums and daughters mums and sons
1: yep we do we do we um we developed a really incredible family program and family is whatever you want that to mean for you but yeah we 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 developed that some years ago. Um, I've got some amazing friends out in a facility in the States called the Karen Foundation. And I did a lot of shadowing and looking at the work and, and the incredible research that they have done. And then we replicated a lot of that over here in the UK. And now we provide that online and internationally. Um, Because we recognize that, you know, as much as we can help somebody heal, if they're going back into a very dysfunctional or damaged environment, it can be really difficult for them to sustain their recovery. So we started working with the whole family systems and that has just been an amazing experience to help whole families really heal and find a place of empathy and understanding where they can really enjoy their relationships again or maybe even for the first time.
0: Do you think the family is where all the madness happens, like Ardy Lang said?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, No, not necessarily. I think that can happen. But I think, you know, we're doing the best that we can with the tools that we have. I really believe that. Yeah. And I think, you know, none of us want to be judged on our worst 15 minutes. And I think my my job or our job is not to, to judge or to decide who's getting it wrong and who's getting it right. It's to think about how to Heal that person's heart, or help them to heal their heart. You know, if they're if they're in a place of pain. Um, if I was extending to, that empathy to everybody, is so important.
0: Yeah, of course. Back to the community. If I was, uh, and that we're not just at one single organism. If mm-hmm. I was to distill your work into a soundbite from what you've said, I would have said your your work is about healing the heart. Mm-hmm. That's it, isn't yeah. it?
1: Yeah, I think that is it really when you, when you break it down. And I think that's why we can get distracted by symptoms. We can get distracted by diagnosis and it's, it's actually, you're talking about someone in pain that needs to heal. And if you can be with them in that space and not try and drag them out of it, then they can feel less alone. And do you, I don't
0: know why I'm going to ask you this, but I'm going to ask you this. Do you see a time when you, when you no longer do this work?
1: Um, no, not really. I think in the, the, how I do the work has changed a lot and I have to rest and I have to make sure I give so much when I'm working uh-huh. and it can tire me out. Um, yeah, But I think I always see myself work. I'm, that's what I'm drawn to. I think I'm drawn to it. And what I've done over the years is change how I show up for people and change how Uh, we're delivering content like the eating disorder program that we've we've created yeah so exciting for me to be able to do that um but I love the people that's where you know I love connecting with people um and I guess we'll wait and see what happens I don't think too much about the future to be honest I just take it kind of day by day and Uh, keep doing what I care about and see what happens yeah yeah yeah
0: is the we're coming drawing to an end is there anything that you would like to add or say that you feel we haven't touched on
1: i think just if if you are in a place of struggle don't wait for someone to give you permission or to validate your experience like what you're feeling is enough to reach out and get support and whether it's you know following a an instagram account that you find helpful or picking up a book like you kindly mentioned um find your true voice talks about a lot of this stuff the book that i had out with penguin last year yeah or picking up the phone and or dropping an email to one of the team that we have who are going to chat to you and they're not going to you know ask anything of you they're just there for you and trust that that support is available and we will signpost you if we need to um
0: what would you say to the person who's unable to pick up the phone, who's frozen?
1: I think that's where I think ordering a book. I read loads. I would never have been able to pick up a phone and tell someone I needed help. So I really empathise with you if you're in that place. Yeah. And that's why, that's why, again, why I wrote the book, because yeah. I remember. I know what it's like yeah. and reading the book suddenly gives you a bit more confidence maybe to make a different choice or to take a knee step and but you're not alone even if that voice tells you that you are you're not uh we know what it's like we know what it feels like and we'll be here if or when you're ready to show up
0: okay that's terrific Mm. final question if you were to go to um an island any island you have a store cupboard so you got olive oil and seasonings, mm-hmm. salt and pepper and stuff. And you were to take five foods with you. What five foods would you take?
1: Oh, am I allowed yeah. to get stuff from the island? Because I eat you can, fish. It's yours. It's, yours. it's yours. Okay. It's your fantasy. So I think yeah, for me, I can live on fish and seafood forever and ever. Okay. But I would need lemons. I think. Okay, so I would have lemons in my cupboard. Uh huh. Um, and does this include drinks like food you can have you can take whatever you want so yeah fish uh lemons tomatoes and probably some nice wine or something like that yes what wine are you taking mean. tell me the wine <gasps> depends on what mood i'm in probably like a nice sancerre or something
0: okay cool
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you've got one more Oh, okay. Um, and probably something like some fruit, like nectarines or something.
0: Okay. Sounds lovely. I'm definitely coming yeah. for
1: dinner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring a bottle of serre. <laughs> Anything else you want to say before we wrap up, Emmy?
1: No, just don't give up. Yeah. If you're struggling, just don't give up.
0: Yeah. I had a therapist who also said, like, when the ship's rocking, just hold on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just okay. don't give up.
0: Okay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. So
1: thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Love This Food Thing. If you'd like to reach me, I'm on Instagram at Love This Food Thing, or you can head to our website, lovethisfoodthing.com. Join our community. Everyone's welcome. Catch you in the next episode.